Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Oh, isn't that's, that nice? That's the theme. Don't die. Yeah. Right? On point. It's Bob and Chuck, and this is the Don't Die podcast, and I want you to reach out and tell a friend about this podcast, because this is the only place you'll really find the, out the truth about treatment. That's what I think. I mean, I'm on a mission from God to, for these millennials to stop dying. But in the meantime, we might as well inform the public about treatment. Yes, I just think it's funny when an avowed atheist says he's on a mission from God. I am on a mission from God. Good for but you. But there's big news, Chuck. I know you were at work today because we're recording at night because you work today. I don't work on Mondays. Oh, So nice. I was here reading the newly released study by Harvard Medical Journal about the opioid, ep opioid epidemic fixing a broken pharmaceutical world, Ooh. right? And it goes into great detail, every name of every crooked murderer in the United States that created this Oxycontin epidemic that led to the heroin epidemic. These people, I'm gonna hunt them down and say, you know uh, what, uh, how much fucking money did you need to make? it's just unbelievable i mean i if anybody really cares if you work in the recovery industry if you're a grieving parent your child's died of, of opioids read this thing it just came out this week in the harvard uh law and policy review it is the story of how big pharma doctors the pain management system wall street and government conspired to murder hundreds of thousands of Americans. And it's amazing. Hundred, multiple hundreds of thousands. Yeah, it's okay. incredible. In 2015, 33,092 Americans died from Oxycontin. If, th if 33,000 Americans in 2015 died of terrorist attacks, do you know what our life would be like? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so anyways, I don't want to bore you with a bunch of details, but I do want to read this one paragraph. It says, it is difficult to over... It is difficult to overstate the extent of opioid overuse and misuse in the United States. Over 4 million Americans misuse opioids each month. Hmm. That's 10% that's, that's of the... Wait, that's 1% of the population is misusing opioids. Over 4 million Americans misuse opioids each month. Between 2005 and 2014, the annual number of opiate-related emergency department visits doubled. Almost as many people now die from opioid overdose as die from car accidents. Yeah, I, I'd heard that it surpassed it. The, mon the fundamental cause of the epidemic was and continues to be an overprescribing of opioids. From 2000 to 2010, the number of prescriptions for oral opioid analgesics in the United States rose 104%. Greater use occurred among men and women and across all age groups. In 2015, U.S. clinicians and medical professionals wrote approximately 300 million opiate prescriptions. Wow. That's one for every man, woman, and child in America. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, I didn't get mine. So, so stop thinking your kids are bad. I deal with your kids, and they're not bad. They're not even drug addicts. I don't know what they are. They're not the most motivated gang in town <laughs> <laughs> would you be with that many opiates out there I mean, you know, were you I changing the world <laughs> you know it, it, i i started doing opiates in 1981 probably 
right? Do you know how hard they were to get? Well, let me just go through the first day I ever did it. <laughs> I had to, for two weeks, go to Monday nights at the Cafe de Grand, where a band called Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs played. Because right, right. I knew that Top Jimmy did heroin, and I wanted to try it. Right, because I'd read about it, Keith Richards, Velvet Underground, William Burroughs, and I was ready. At 19 years old, I'm ready. Top Jimmy, I'm ready. So, so you had to prove to somebody that you weren't a snitch, that you weren't a cop, that you weren't something. So you, you, had, you got this screening process. So I went by on Monday night, and I was kind of friends with Jimmy or a fan of Jimmy's, like a combination fan, give money to, uh, you know, a uh, friend of top jimmy because i idolized him so i said jimmy you know i really want to get some dope i knew that's what the word was Whoa. you had to know what the word was the secret word dope wasn't dope. pot dope dope was dope and so this is before the word dope was hijacked by the hip-hop community this right. was dope right. dope this dope. was bebop dope so i needed i wanted to get some dope he just looked at me he goes mr jones you're crazy that's what he said mr jones you're crazy so I was like, no, 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 I'm not kidding around. And he just walked away. So, so that was before the show. That he, he used to play there every Monday night. Then after the show, I waited till 2 o'clock in the morning. I had school at 8 in the morning. I waited till 2 o'clock in the morning when he was done walking out. And I go, you know, I'm serious, Jimmy, about, about getting dope. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, what dope are you talking about? You know, because that was the screening and this playful word. I don't know. It was weird. I'd like two dopes. Yeah. And he goes, I go, heroin. He goes, don't say that fucking word. Because you're in public. Right. Cops could yeah. hear. people. It was very illegal. You could go to prison for possession of heroin in 1980. And many did. Right? Mm. That's what the whole Wood Society is. It's late 70s, early 80s, he drug addicts. White middle class drug addicts or working class drug addicts went to prison and they invented the wood world. <laughs> wood, wood world. <laughs> they did. I, I came in. Dope. I came in contact with the wood world. <laughs> so, so, anyways, uh, <sighs> he just got in a car with some girl and he left. So the next week, next Monday, I go there again. I, I'm like Jimmy, I'm serious. And he goes, All right, Mr. Jones. All right. And then he went to go play. And and afterwards, I was like, I'm serious. And he goes, all right, so we'll see. We'll see. I'll talk to you. <laughs> so the second <laughs> Monday night, I'm not. Okay, I'll see, we'll see. So I saw him somewhere else that week, and I said, I really want to get dope. He goes, you got money? And I go, I got money. You know, and I, I don't know what it was. I think it was probably $50 at the time, which 50 bucks in 1980 or 81 was a lot of money. So he goes, all right, you got a car, Mr. Jones? And I was like, yeah, he always called me Mr. Jones. I was going to ask it. It's a long story. So I didn't ask him for like three years. <laughs> okay. I just thought he thinks my name is Bob Jones. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> this was the neat, interesting, charismatic, funny, artful, interesting, intellectual world of being a drug addict. It was people like Jimmy and Buddy Arnold and, and, and really interesting people were drug addicts. Not just your grandma, like nowadays. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he get, I, we get in my car. I had a, a Valiant with the push-button oh. thing. It's in the movie Bob and the Monster. 
there's a claymation of it, right? Right. It's a, a Valiant with a push-button transmission. So we go, he gets on the, get on the Hollywood freeway going north from the Cathay to Grand. We go over the valley, get off on Vineland. And I remember, and we're going, we just got off the freeway. He said, park, right? Right on Vineland. And he goes, give me the money. And I gave him the money. He got out. I sat in that car for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was getting high. <laughs> I drove around, and then I thought, oh, my God, he came back to where I was parked, and he's left now. You know what I mean? And I just sat there. I didn't know what to do. I kept. I went to 7-Eleven. I came back. I ate in the car. I was waiting literally two or three hours. Finally, he comes walking out, and he gets in the car and goes, drive, Mr. Jones. So I drive back, and he told me this is where I found out where he lived at 1313 Orange Drive on Fountain and Orange. Yeah. We go back there. I did heroin for the first time. He shot me up. It was the greatest experience and a foretelling of the worst tragedy that's ever going to happen to me all in like 11 seconds. I knew it. I knew that that drug was going to be the death of me and part of me didn't care and part of me was daring myself and it was just, and it, it just takes you on a ride. Now, that's me in 1980. Fast forward to, to an 18-year-old kid in Valencia, football linebacker, gets tears his ACL, goes to the hospital, gets surgery, gets heroin. Same shit. He's sitting in his bedroom in Valencia, star football player for Valencia High School, and I'm just using Valencia as a town of, okay, of a million towns right. in America. And he's high on heroin, just like I was in Top Jimmy's house. Same fucking thing. Make no mistake, America. The experience of OxyContin and heroin are the same. Are they not, Chuck? Absolutely. Well, I never did OxyContin. I know molecularly, molecularly, that's a word. They uh, are. Yeah. I well, mean, similar enough that, I mean. Have you done Dilaudid? You had to have done Dilaudid. Well, I know that I did a bunch of different types of opiates. Dilaudid, probably. Yeah. It's all the same. It's all morphine. It's just seven different ways to, to create morphine. Well, I like morphine. To deliver morphine. Right. This is the interesting thing. Like When they create these drugs, they're always saying, oh, it's for end of life. It's for when you're dying of cancer and you're in so much pain, right? That's the big mantra of big pharma. Why we need another opiate like OxyContin or fentanyl or whatever else is to come, right? If we don't stop them, because unless somebody stops them, they're going to keep going because there's too many billions of dollars to be made. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they do what everybody else is doing when they're importing it? Just change another change another electron on the freaking yeah, chemical yeah. makeup and sell it as, as being well, safe they, again. They, they've got to wait a few years now to come up with a new one, but they, they will. They've it up with a bunch of research that is all skewed to their advantage. So, But it's always with the same motivation. We don't want babies that have cancer to be in pain. Right. And no, Everyone I ever yeah. have known, Maureen, my good friend from AA, Gloria Scott, my sponsor, my, my mother, my own grandmother mother, all died of cancer in excruciating pain. Guess what drug they were on? Morphine. Morphine's existed for 120 years. 140 <laughs> years. Yeah. We don't need a new one. We've got morphine. It's the greatest. It Everybody works. who's dying on it's on it. Yeah. Right? 
So anyways, that's my, my preamble. But what I wanted to get into today is I, I get these calls all the time. Is this a good rehab center? Right? So my friends in this rehab center, is it a good rehab center? And I always think sometimes it's one I know is not good. And I, I fear saying it for fear of lawsuit. Well, not right? only that, what if, what if their person is getting something out of it? What if they have the right connection with a, a, a case manager, a counselor, a therapist? What if somebody is doing actually good work in let there? Me, no, let me describe what was described to me today. Okay. There are no groups. The girl has her cell phone. She's on Suboxone. She's happy. She loves it there. There's oh, no, it's not working if she loves it. <laughs> Come on. You got to be pissed. Ours are pissed, and they go everywhere there is to go. They were pissed off At, about going whale watching this listen, weekend. Listen, <laughs> these Suboxone clinics, can I give you corrupt motherfuckers a tip? At least have groups so that the clients complain to their parents about how fucked up it is, because yeah. then, then you'll really schmooze over everybody, right? But when they have no groups... And they're just like watching TV and hanging out or flirting or smoking cigarettes. Yeah. And they're charging their insurance $1,400 a day. You have to at least. Inflict. At least just make them a little bit miserable so they complain <laughs> so that we don't know you're a fucking scumbag. Yeah. <laughs> Suboxone Maintenance Center. You know what? Dude, that's terrible. And you know what? I can't get wild in the streets out of my head. Was that a 64 Valiant that you had? Yes, it was. The greatest car ever. Did, did Keith write about your saw your Keith car? Keith drove in that car. We Keith and I were roommates. He, we had a push button. So it is the Wild in the Streets car. No, that Wild in the Streets was written by another band. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, he's got a '64 Valium. Yeah, Keith didn't write it. Handful of Valiums. No. Oh, is that is that his song? Running wild in the street. Yeah. No. Blondie Chaplin wrote that song. We need the great Mike Mart to come in. Our great producer. Mike Mart, will you please enter the studio because we need some verification. I thought, I thought Blondie or, or somebody wrote, who wrote Wild in the Streets? Not Keith, right? <laughs> you are correct that Keith changed two of the lines from the original version by Garland Jeffries to put 64 Valiant, handful of Valiums, couple of beers really do me right. Those are the only two lines that are different. <laughs> you are correct. You know your, your circle jerks, your my car, friend. Your car. Yeah, you know your circle jerk. So anyways, the the parents should understand that their kids would never have become heroin addicts. So they're they're wired different, but they are now they are they they now know something that very few Americans knew up until the last 10 years, which is heroin is really good. It is really yeah. good. It is the it is pandora's box <laughs> that was that was in a in a text i was having with some friends of mine and i said hey you want to come on and talk about you know come on the show and talk about what you think about opiates and the current thing and all i got back was opiates are great <laughs> and another one was opiates rule well yes they do if they didn't rule right off the bat you there wouldn't even be that inner discussion if it wasn't such a great high you wouldn't have had the back and forth struggle that you had you would have just you would have said, no, nah, man, not worth my life. If it were a beer buzz that you got, it wouldn't have been worth it. Yeah, so it's, it's a weird how it's happened. And now, you know, we're, we're through the looking glass and we have a corrupt, out-of-control recovery industry. We have millions of drug addicts like never before. And 
I want to help the public kind of, you know, navigate that craziness that is how do you find help? What kind of help does your kid or loved one need, right? Mm -hmm. And I've defaulted back that, I mean, I go back and forth. I, I try something for a year and it doesn't really work very good. And, and then I kind of go in a different direction. Uh, initially, I was detox and go to 12-step. And if you don't like it, you're saving money because you're not wasting millions of dollars on treatment. Uh, that's still a great idea. That's still a nice, safe one. They don't really like the 12-step, though. <laughs> you know, you know how that goes. Then you find a way to make it work for you when... If, if you're really that desperate. But that's what we were talking about. Is keeping no, they're them alive. dying before they're right, desperate. Keeping them alive long enough to get desperate. Um, but the idea of, um, I, I think it's, especially right now, I know we get people doing walkthroughs all the time. I think it's important to do walkthroughs. You can't just send your kid across the country and not have no, any idea where they're going. Unless they're adults, then it's on them. Well, they're all adults. Yeah. The, 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 what is an adult has changed in, the, in this generation right. too. But, but mostly what I now, so I went to the detox and go to 12-step. Why waste a bunch of money um, on therapy that I don't think a 20-year-old kid even has the intellectual capacity to understand? I don't even think I do. So let alone if I was 20 or 20-year-olds 20 nowadays, I don't think they understand what we're talking about in trauma and, oh, and, you know, and you're responsible for it, yet you're not. You're responsible for the treatment of it but not you are a victim. They just see themselves as victims. It's very, there, a, lot of, a lot of strange shit is happening right now. Because mm -hmm. you take a 30-year-old dude that, or a gal that's been through life, who's had a job, who's had a house, who, and, and then put them into treatment where you're getting this psychodynamic approach and biopsychosocial approach and you're being educated and you're kind of deciding on on what you believe and what you don't believe and what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do, that's way different than the 20-year-old kids. They um, don't even know what they believe. And they're going to adult drug treatment that does not work for them. It's ineffective. And, and we all know that most drug treatment in America leads to a psycho support network, which is a fancy way of saying AA or NA, right? They're not going to go. So over the last five years, I've had Andrew, a friend of mine that has a bunch of treatment centers, he thought, why don't we invent a new millennial 12-step program, right? Called what? Well, I mean, whatever, you know, AA was just a, a, a reaction to not liking the Oxford group. Why right. isn't there a reaction to inventing a new psychosupport network that is a reaction to not liking AA. You know, I think we've been down this road with with the thoughts before, and that is having the more privatized type meetings, people um, staying within the traditions but doing things differently, you know, finding like-minded people that are not, that, that aren't off that the, same old... The God issue always comes up because I, me and Andrew and then me and my friend Evan have had talks for weeks and months and years about this. What is it that the 21st century version of it would be. I vote for less honesty and less God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mike, you know, Mark. <laughs> Mike, Mike doesn't, Mike wants to chime in on something he doesn't know about and, and he won't chime in about music that he does know everything about. That's America. 
My sponsor was a biker that lied to newcomers and told them they got a Harley Davidson if they got a year sober. <laughs> Do you know the story? When you get one year sober. That worked. But, but seriously, the thing of God is the reason why Bill Wilson longed for a new 12-step ap- uh, new approach was the over-religiosity of the Oxford group. True. Right. I think that is a major issue of why millennials do not grasp hold of the Alcoholics Anonymous message. Because when you're talking about uh, basically a, a, a divided society, half is secular, doesn't believe in anything anymore. Half is overly re- re- religious, believes the Bible is literal truth that there was a boat that everyone went on. Right, so you have this divided nation, these divided influences on millennials. Right, I was thinking mm-hmm. about it the other day. My kids don't believe in anything because I don't believe in anything. Their moms don't believe in anything. You have a whole so- part of society that doesn't want to talk about it because the religious people are so, you know, aggressive and and insistent and. And whatever, but there's a whole part of the society that believes. Well, you know, God is what you want it to be. Well, I don't, you know I what don't I mean? Know. There is that joke that says like an atheist, a cross trainer, and a vegan all walk into the bar, and we know it because they told everybody. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. CrossFit. I, I, I did CrossFit. I, I, I'm an atheist, <laughs> CrossFit vegan. You know, it's just like it's one of those things where I don't run around telling people what I, I. I got the feeling most of my friends that are atheists, I know what they. They think, and I know that in AA we don't we don't push any of that. Yeah, out. we do. I it's don't. a Christian organization. I, I don't. Where, where, it's a Christian organization. Where, it's monotheism. It's not Buddhism. It's not Hinduism. It, it's it is Christianity. For some people, in my Sunday meeting, it is. For some but people, it is. But the, the read the text, oh, read the document. Oh, yeah. It's God monotheism, and I think that turns off millennials right off the bat because they don't even have a brain like mine that was raised Catholic that's rejecting a whole belief system and has done a whole lifelong journey of being comfortable with rejection of what I was scared into, brainwashed into at five and seven years old. Mm-hmm. right that's a journey and that's that all along that journey is a self-discovery they don't even have that they weren't raised catholic they weren't raised anything they were raised like you know kardashian yeah there's they're, also, they're, they're, they're more say, raised kardashian there's, there's also a giant societal uh chasm there too because you've got like i was talking to a young guy on the way here where he was talking about you know, the family afterward, he goes, man, I can't believe they expect the family to do so much. I don't think they should be expected to do that much for the alcoholic. And I say, this is a different world. It's it a was different a society. different world. It, you know, that's what, you know, my sponsor always tells a story where you were like 15 times more likely to commit suicide than get a divorce in 1935. It was a different world. People didn't, people stayed together. The women tolerated. So there is a lot of old society in that book. That, oh, I know. Um, so there, there are parts of it. There's where a chapter you, called To the Wives that basically is like, to writ, the, to the people Bill. we hold as property. Uh, written by Bill. <laughs> Not yet. Written by Bill. That's the best. You didn't even let so, Lois write it. That's the best so, part. So the idea being, there obviously there is going to be some sort of movement I mean, I, I don't really know what it's going to be, but it's going to be something because I think that if the millennials are rejecting the 12-step approach, the generation after the millennials, it'll be over. We'll mm. be dead. There will be nothing left. 
Right. And, you know, I'm, I, I think Jack will still be alive and he'll still be talking. I got a feeling he might be around a <laughs> I while. Gotta believe, I, know, <laughs> I know for sure Jack Grisham is going to outlive me. I, I would really like, I like the idea of like a 120-year-old Jack. Just get <laughs> on my lawn. On. Talk, <laughs> talking to eight people on the beach in Huntington. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I, or, or. You know, I I see some hope in Wikipa, Wikipu, whatever it is, Wikipa, Wichipu, yeah, whatever it is. You ever mm-hmm. been to it? Yes. Dude, they don't want old weirdos no, there. No, I stopped going a long time ago. But when I was new sober, that's what an Okipa and Ikipa. What's all the, the what pa- are those? What do they stand for? Uh, Orange County Young People in AA. But what's the big regional Con- one? International Conference of Young People in AA is Ikipa. Icky yeah. I went and spoke at it in Las Vegas, and they had shirts that said, uh, Bill Wilson is my homeboy. I still got it. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Wilson is my homeboy. Yeah, I think but, you'd be insulted. I don't think you would understand. Well, yeah, but that's <laughs> the beauty of it. It's supposed, right. to, it's supposed to grow almost like democracy is supposed to evolve. It's a living thing. Right. The, the Constitution is a living thing. The 12 steps are supposed to be a living thing, and it seems that it's been stuck in some sort of religious Ten Commandments on some tablets, you can't disagree in it, with with people about it. Like I don't take it that serious. People just can't believe that I'll say that. I, I've never learned anything in the Twelve Steps I didn't learn in kindergarten. Right. You, be yeah. cool to people. Don't be an asshole. If you're suffering, you're bringing that suffering on yourself. I mean, it's pretty obvious shit. And people act like it's so profound. I think it's all an act. Right? If you do something fucked to somebody and it haunts you, shouldn't you go back and fucking straighten that out? Do you yeah. really think that's that profound an idea? No, but it, it puts it down in a way that makes it to where people can see it and it gives them something to do. People love to have lists. People love to have <laughs> things to accomplish. They do love to have lists. People love to, to check all the boxes. People, I mean... That's not, the I, thing I tell all the people I work with. When you, when you read your fourth step, you have this feeling of accomplishment. Right. Right? You go home, it takes an hour to do two more steps, you're on step eight. Now you're two-thirds done. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that that feeling of moving forward and accomplishment is the only thing I think it really achieves. Well, I'd, yeah, and I checked off all these boxes. And now I've done all these things because then that's where my sponsor pisses people off all the time. He'll go, they asked Bill Wilson uh, about the order of the steps, and he said, you can do them in any order you want. I mean, they tell you to go work with people when you got one day sober. They go, go, work, yeah, yeah. go, go talk to someone with less time than you. So you're supposed to be doing 12-step work when you haven't even done a proper first second or any of it that's what i'm saying there was a flexibility even in the 80s nobody talked about it it was just when i first came in nobody was you know don bowles you think he was talking about the steps <laughs> that's one of the things that attracted me to na it's like one of my favorite human beings and one of my favorite bands is in in this former park right yeah. it made me want to be a part of it and and that whole anonymity i don't give a fuck sue me what are you going to do? <laughs> Fuck all you all. This, this secrecy is part of the shame of the disease. I'm convinced of it. This, this idea that, you know, it's obvious that I'm, I'm sober because I'd be dead if I wasn't. Right. You know, I always right. say, you know, this whole thing, people, people use it to, to what 
protects them, right? So if you feel ashamed for being a drug addict or you feel less than, I feel better than. I think drug addicts are smarter than normal people. I think alcoholics are more interesting than normal people. That's why I'm saying all these people that are in treatment are not alcoholics and drug addicts because they're uninteresting and they're not. They're not. When I went to when I went to treatment, when I worked in treatment the first ten years, everyone that came in the door was fucking interesting. Now no one is. It's true. Well, it's it's. I'm the like, only one that's going to speak truth. Well, Even no, Chuck won't admit no, no, it. No, this is. No, I'm kind of with you because, like, what you were talking about is grandma grandma and football player who hurt his leg not people that felt like they didn't fit in not people that took the drugs for the experimental kind of let's see where this takes us not the people that were curious to see what else is out there not the thrill seekers not the adventurers not the ones that got lost in literature not the ones that the most interesting people i've ever met people that got lost in music but the guy that you know just hurt his arm and ended up taking oxycontin is a drug addict now how about a comedian that told me all about clown school like, I, I was like, where'd you go to school? And he said, clown school. And I go, they have a clown school? Does like, Barnum and Bailey have yeah, a clown Yeah, he went to Barnum and Bailey clown school. <laughs> All right. Like, that's an interesting fucking guy you want to know more about. Now you ask, <laughs> ask a client tomorrow, hey, so what's going on with you? Like, nothing. Mm. What have you done? What have you achieved in your life? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> I swear to God. It's spread even and now and the argument would be there's a classing or an education thing. I'm not being elitist about that. I was in cry help with people that dropped out of school when they were in eighth grade. They were fucking interesting. <laughs> yeah. I was in there was a guy who used to cut hair at night after lights out, like between ten and eleven. When you came back from the meeting and lights out at eleven thirty, you would pay him five bucks to cut your hair or whatever. In the, in the bathroom at Cry Help, upstairs where no techs were. You probably never got a haircut, huh? I got it. I got it. Oh. It was back in the new wavy days. <laughs> Did you get diagonal hair? <laughs> I wanted to go for like a, a, like a Beatles Ringo Bob thing. So, so he's cutting my hair and he's telling me his stories like, yeah, it was, you know, his, he was in YA and he murdered somebody. And oh, just, great. Just fuck, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. No, but he had scissors at your neck. Yeah, and he had scissors <laughs> at my neck. Good deal. Right? <laughs> so years later, I find out that guy um, murdered somebody else and then was caught. This is the most interesting thing. So he, w- he had... He, he, was, he was tricking. He was gay tricking, right, for drugs, obviously, or something, or I don't know. But um, so, and he was a kind of a hustler kid, right? And so he had murdered one of his Johns who, you know, probably was a self-defense type thing. But he's a, you know, he's a criminal, interesting right. guy guy. And uh, so he got the body up, put it in a bunch of trash bags, and drove with the guy's car to Angeles Crest forest and just kept driving along the road and going down in the, and, and, and burying different parts of it, right? Wow. What he didn't know was that the feds or the, or the state had infrared cameras up there because they were, they were um, investigating uh, illegal pot farms that were up there. Oh, so they had the guys <laughs> drive. They just yeah. see this kid, I guess through the videotape or whatever, like pulling along the side of Angeles Crest Highway, running down in, staying about three minutes, and then getting back in the car and driving another mile up the road oh. and doing it. And, they, and the license plate of the car 
So then they went to the guy's house and he was disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, not the smartest criminal, but an interesting guy. With a story to tell, apparently. constantly met interesting people. And, and, And my thing is, you know, I just live on the fringes of society, but interesting people live out on the fringes. Mm-hmm. That's where the drug addicts used to be, out on the fringes. Now it's in straight down the middle. Rush Limbaugh's a drug addict. Right. Rush no, Limbaugh. <laughs> Think about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So, so drug addiction in America morphed and evolved from the fringes to the center. And in the center is nothing I'm interested in. Well, that's why I got out because it was going mainstream. <laughs> it was it stopped being underground, dude. I'm out. Next trend. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. When Bruno Mars is a drug addict, it's kind of a oh, bummer. Oh God, it's over. If Bruno <laughs> Mars is a dope fiend, I'm out. You guys are lame. Yeah. So, so that's part of it, and and so I don't think they're real drug addicts. I just don't. I think that there's something. There are people that got addicted to opiates because who doesn't? If you're if you don't hate it, you're gonna love it. Which I know there are people that they there's have. There's a few that hate it. Yeah, but they're weird. And but so most love it. Most do, and you're supposed to. It's dopamine and endorphins. How, how could you not like it? I mean, it's it's what's kept us alive as a species is the dopamine in it. So. It's a survival mechanism. It's absolutely. It's a huge one. So when you get that much of it, if I give you a thousand times what you get from having sex, how could you not like it when that's kept the species So, alive? So in conclusion, what needs to happen is less exposure. They need to lock opiates back into Pandora's box and not give it to the next generation. I think that's what's going to happen. I think it's going to be hard and it's going to be... It's going to be a bummer because some people that should, probably should get opiates are not going to be able to get them like they couldn't get them 25 years ago. They're going to be in pain. They're going to be suffering. That's a byproduct of what just happened for the last 10 years. Yeah, but the, the, all the prescriptions you were talking about, that's easy to monitor. That's why they have the number on it. If the prescriptions, if the amount of those prescriptions were cut, cut by half, there wouldn't be as much floating around out there. Nobody has a real solution. I talked to Drew for hours about this, Dr. Drew, and I said, can't they just limit the morphine or the different drugs to hospital use only? And he goes, no, that's, that's, doctors can do whatever they want. So doctors in America can do whatever they want. The only way to stop it is to make it illegal. They're mm-hmm. gonna, and that's basically what, what the, the triplicate and the, and the high monetization uh, monitoring of of oxycontin is what's made it not exist doctors aren't interested in prescribing it and it's gone out of patent so it's not that profitable anymore so you won't see it anymore and i don't think there'll be another one so that's good that's good no i think that the american public is pretty aware like hey my nephew died of that stuff i think somebody should regulate that you know what i mean the pain scale was removed that as oh, the fifth vital sign. So I think we're safe with opiates. The, the, and that's the only thing I care about. People shouldn't die before they get the chance to become interesting. Well said. Right? And so that's what we're trying to do. And uh, if you got any questions, you can email me or you can text message me or Chuck or somebody <laughs> or get a question out or Facebook Live or Facebook this or this or that or Twitter. Yeah, Bob page. Twitter, rehabbob.com or whatever. Hey, we have the Aloe Treatment Center's commercial. Yeah. Oh, we're going to a commercial. All right. 
Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call. Okay, we're back. That was the commercial for Aloe Treatment Centers, the place that I found it. When I found it, it was called Acadia. But then there was this, because uh, the Acadians, or my two partners were Canadian, and the Acadian native tribe of Canada is the most tenacious, persevering, suffering people of Canada. So the Acadians are these legendary people in Canada. Do you know that? No. So we named the treatment center Acadia after the tip of the hat to the Canadian tribe. And there was this big, huge, mega corporation, methadone clinic, I don't know what the hell they are, called Acadia Medical Group or something. And they sued and said we couldn't use the name. So then we changed it to Aloe, which means Acadia lives on. But it is the only, it is the only treatment center in L.A. that I recommend. You know, and that's saying something as critical as I am. With how many there are, yeah. Because there's more licensed people there than I've seen anywhere at a rehab center. You know what I mean? It's pretty, it's like going into Hazelden almost. But, you know, it's still the same stuff. Millennials, they don't know their ass from a hole in the ground. I am going to criticize millennials. I got something on Facebook where a woman, a woman criticized me, calling me a grumpy old man for, um, for uh, criticizing millennials, and mm. I just blasted her back. I didn't blast her in a mean way. I like her, but I, I mean, not. I um, because my main thing is Sam Shepard died today, and Sam Shepard changed my life with one sentence. What sentence Sam, was that? I got Sam Shepard wrote a song with Bob Dylan called "Brownsville Girl," and in it, it says. I've always said people don't do what they believe in. They just do what's most convenient. And if they get caught, they repent. Right? So I just, I just narrowed it down to, I, don't w- I want to be somebody who does what I believe in every day. I don't care if I make a million dollars. I don't care if I just, I want to do something that I believe in. And for 20 years, it was playing music. And for 20 years, it's been doing this trying to get the message out, the message of hope. You don't have to die of drugs. You don't have to fucking be ripped off by these fucking scumbag rehabs. You can get sober. And, you, and, it's, and I believe it's easy to get sober. I think it's hard to stay sober. <clears throat> yeah, I heard it. A, a co-worker, uh, she was smarter than I am. Uh, Sarah said in, in, a, in a group today, she said it, it's so much easier to be sober and stay sober than it is to be loaded and, and try and get sober. And, and that wasn't even the, the whole gist of it, but the idea of it's so much, it, where I've been sitting for the last almost 20 years is so much easier than where I was sitting, wanting to quit again, wanting to stop, wanting to, you know, because the last run I, I tried to keep opiates out of the mix because I knew they were bad. Yeah, I, 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 I I I would go back and forth. I would only drink, and then I was I would right. only smoke heroin. So this is what I wrote to the woman because I she wrote millennials always surprise me by all the things they know that seem beyond their age range. Don't second guess the young. I wrote I deal with forty to eighty different uh, d- different ones every thirty days. I think you need to meet more of them. <laughs> Saying how awesome they are has been their curse since birth. 
they need to be told the truth like we are to, were told the truth by people like Sam Shepard and Bob Dylan and our parents. Instead of lying because we don't want to hurt their feelings, they can handle it. They're not made of glass. Better sooner than later. 65% of them still live with their parents. That's pathetic. It's mm. pathetic. It's not acceptable. And everybody's, oh, you, but there's no jobs. I don't care. Live mm. in your fucking car. There was no jobs when I left my parents' house. I went, I'm trying to think of what I did. I worked at a pizza parlor. No, I, I love I love all that when they pull up, uh, you know, things that say, well, you had to work. They have to work five times harder to be able to afford half the luxuries that you were. You know, what? I didn't have luxuries, but, you know, we made do. We may do with with very little, and and that's okay, and that's all I expect from anybody. It's the same thing. You have two roommates. That's it. I had yeah. two roommates. Anthony and Flea and me lived in a one bedroom apartment. It was not very comfortable. I bet it smelled bad. It was not a nice place to live, but that's that's what you did, right? Because you're not going to live at your parents' house. That's pathetic, <laughs> right? It's the yeah. truth. We yeah. were. Anthony Flea were 20, I was 21. Or tw- uh, 20, I was 22, they were 21. You don't live at your fucking parents' house when you're 21 years old. You live in a one-bedroom apartment in the ghetto of Hollywood with two roommates. That's what you do. And you walk everywhere. Skateboard. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> this is when yeah. you could skateboard on Hollywood Boulevard. We lived right off Hollywood Boulevard. Dude, you could get anywhere in Hollywood in like three and a half minutes you could because it's so smooth now you can't now you can't skate on hollywood boulevard i hadn't even thought of that it's against the law you get arrested though i took elvis there to go skating in a part that was hidden when he first started skateboard riding i said come on elvis we're gonna go to the greatest place to skateboard i used to skateboard when i was a little boy and we went on Hollywood Boulevard in front of across from the fondo in front of pep boys because i figure cops aren't gonna arrest us for skating there you do it around the Pantages or around Highland, you're going to get in trouble. But he, back and forth, back and forth, it was so great because that smooth surface of the Hollywood Boulevard sidewalk, greatest thing ever, huh. right? We used yeah. to push amps down there to go to gigs because the gigs were at, there was three clubs off of Hollywood Boulevard. There was Cathay de Grandet, Selma and Argyle, right? Which is just half a block south of Hollywood there. Boulevard. Then there was... This uh, Seven Seas at uh, where Jimmy Kimmel show is now across from Grauman's. El Capitan. And then I had a club at a at a at a little re- Chinese restaurant right at uh, Whitley and Hollywood Boulevard. It was called the Sunday Club. Mike played there. I think Mike got me banned there. That was right. Texan the Horseheads ruined uh. a, a thing that I had going that was the funnest thing ever called Sunday Club. It was from four to eight on Sundays. Bunch of bands. Fun, fun, fun for all. Tex and the Horseheads played and Tex ran across the tables and kicked all the drinks off or something and the owner was just, I can't have this. He's like, this weird. Hey, wh- why I, can't, I can't have this. Why did he say it like that? <laughs> well, what was, was wrong with him? Hollywood Boulevard was kind of controlled <laughs> by this weird, like, I don't know. It was like Persians or what it was. It was like Eddie Nash. Like, I can't and, have they, this. and it was like a it was like a Chinese restaurant, but it was run by uh, Armenians or Persians or something. <laughs> and, and they just liked that people drank bought beer, you know what I mean? You could really start a club just in a restaurant or a bar. And, and so we would push the amps from the house to the gig. 
So that's how millennials should be living right now. Not at their parents' house asking their mom, can I take the car? No, you should walk or skateboard or ride a bike or take the bus or fucking live life and go be with your friends and learn how to be an adult and learn how to fucking want to have a better life. See, here's the interesting thing. And I say this about two things about millennials. One is rehab is way better than real life, right? Oh, yeah. The houses are nicer than any house you're ever going to live in. Probably. You never have to replace the toilet paper or the trash liner. You never have to worry about food in the refrigerator or coffee or mm -hmm. sugar. All the things that life's everyday miseries do not exist in rehab. So it's actually better than the life that the drug addict has using or sober, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing at the parent's house. Parent's house, always sugar, always coffee, always food in the refrigerator, always a car, always transportation, always somebody to listen to your poo butt problems, right? <laughs> it's the same yeah. thing. Rehab and mom's house are the same thing. The, I want all millennials to break free of that and go live in fucking apartments and fucking bum fuck I don't know where. Yeah, I went, you know I went I mean? to Long Beach, you know, so <laughs> yeah, I went down to Third and Temple and that's it. We had three people in a $600 a month place. Yeah, there you, you go. Know, and and it worked. And then we got a house. Off Elijah lived in the booby patch. Remember that place in Long Beach, the booby hatch or the booby, <laughs> the booby trap? You ever heard of it? <laughs> no. There was like ten kids lived there. It was a it was a Victorian style house on Long Beach Boulevard that had an attic and a basement, and more than five people lived there. I think. More it was like 10 time. kids lived there. They had padlocks on their bedroom doors. Nice. They had a uh, concert hall in the living room. There was beer and cigarettes and whiskey bottles everywhere. That's how you, what you're supposed to do when you're 17. Guess what? When he's 30, he's got a dope pad in Highland Park. He's got a good job. I don't know how these kids that are going from their parents' house to rehab, back to the parents' house to rehab, back to the parents' house to rehab. I don't know how they learn how life works but they don't they have to step out of it they have to come away from it i mean it's like one of the ladies i work with who did with her kid like what i did had to do with both of mine my older ones um you know she goes my kid from homeless to homeowner in two years there you go you know and how did how does he become a homeowner from staying at mom's house oh hell no how did he get homeless because she was a good mom and allowed it to happen there you go. And we'll continue this conversation. But just so you know, I'm not going to back down about millennials. We've been too nice about them and protecting them. And they're really great. They are smart. They are uh, capable. But, but baby boomers and Gen Xers are fucking them up by trying to protect them. And I want them to, you know, realize the truth of their own f fucking existence. And, you know, I don't think going back and forth between their parents' house mm. and r fancy rehab at 26 years old is the way to go. All right. Don't die. Don't die. Just don't mix the benzos and heroin. I think you'll be all right. That's a good start. Yeah. That's, a, that's the theme of the day. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.